Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 126, recorded on October 6th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. We kick the show off today with a project that just seems to be getting better all the time. Yeah, Nextcloud. They've released version 17, and this feels like a very enterprisey release to me. I think there's no doubt about it. Enterprise indeed. This has to be the result of some large deployments that have come back with individual feature requests and driven some of this development. And I've kind of gotten that just having some chats with the Nextcloud project. This release, though, brings a couple of major features that are in line with that. Remote Wipe allows administrators to forcibly clean files from remote devices. You know, maybe like a laptop is stolen. They've made Big improvements to both secure document viewing and watermarking, as well as implemented their new text editor, which they say is distraction-free. And it is a, also a live collaborative text editor. It's one that we've done some testing with recently in-house, and it is pretty great. Supports Markdown as well. And there's other things in here that are very enterprisey. Improvements to the way two-factor authentication works. Oh, here's a big one. This is, <laughs> this is great. LDAP write support. So now you can make changes to users in an LDAP database from Nextcloud. So you could, in a sense, have two-way attribution sync as well. That's massive. In the past, Nextcloud could read some of that user data, but, but never have any write functionality to that LDAP database, which meant you were always forcing changes down to Nextcloud. Now networks that use LDAP for central authentication have another option to manage users. And lastly, there's other things in there that really seem focused at large installations, but seem to have, I would say, trickle-down benefits to everyday end users or small business installations as well. You don't have to be a government to use Remote Wipe. That can be useful for anybody. Yeah, and that collaborative text editor, Nextcloud Text, that has got me very, very interested. I've tried it out briefly, but I think we need to do some serious testing of it. It looks like it could potentially replace Google Docs. It's not as feature-rich, but then... I think a lot of the features in Google Docs we don't necessarily need. And the fact that you can either write in Markdown or just in completely WYSIWYG style and it will create Markdown files for you, I think could solve a lot of problems for us because I hate writing in Markdown and you hate writing in anything else. <laughs> I think in Markdown. I take notes in Markdown. When I'm writing personal shopping lists, I write them in Markdown. <laughs> I really do. So for me, it's like, oh, that's a pretty big feature. Um and I like the idea of these being files on a file system somewhere as well. You know, with Google Drive, you can get there, but it's not just sitting on your file system on a server that syncs to your desktop. Yeah, with Google Drive, it is possible to download the files, but that's much clunkier than just having them right there as just a .md file. So I think we're on Nextcloud 16 right now for uh, our main team collaboration tool, but... I really don't see any reason why we won't be upgrading pretty soon, so we might do that before this week's Linux Unplugged and see how it turns out. I'm a little apprehensive now because we rely on Nextcloud so much as a tool, but it really has become a valuable tool. And we, When we're done recording this podcast, I will transfer the flax to Joe using Nextcloud. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's critical to what we do now. Yeah, but I'm sure Wes is on it. If it all goes wrong, you can just roll back or whatever. That's true. It's all in a container, Joe. What could go wrong? It's a container. <laughs> Well, speaking of documents, the Document Foundation has come up with a new way of raising funds for the project. And to do that, they are creating the Document Collective. Yeah, and I'll remind everybody that the Document Foundation is the home of LibreOffice. And of note for this story, the foundation was established in part 
to ensure that commercial entities did not have undue influence on the project, which limited the types of activities they could engage in. In particular, selling branded versions of LibreOffice in app stores was something that the Document Foundation could not take on. So they looked for a way to solve this problem, and they think they have one. It is now the Document Collective, the TDC, which will engage in certain commercial activities that they say are complementary to the Document Foundation. Which pretty much means selling branded versions of LibreOffice in app stores. Right. Now, how they're pulling this off is a little funky, so stay with me. The new document collective will work with public software CIC, which is a European umbrella organization where Simon Phipps is its director, and they will directly engage in the app creation and putting it in the app stores. The collective will sort of observe and watch, and then the Document Foundation will benefit, is the idea. And I guess they're working with this third party, the public software CIC, to move really fast. Like, they want to get in app stores right now. So instead of waiting around for the Document Collective to get their leadership structure figured out, to get all of their policies and practices defined, they're just going to get right to work with public software CIC, which has raised a few eyebrows. Yeah, because Simon Phipps, who you mentioned there, is a Document Foundation board deputy, but he's also one of the founders and the only director of public software CIC. So there have been concerns of a potential conflict of interest there. Thankfully, the board meetings, this conversation, it's all public. It's documented. And LWN.net is doing a first-class job of writing all of this up. So these are the kinds of things that, as an open community, we can watch and observe. And they are addressing people's questions in their next board meeting. Uh, This stuff's still kind of new, so it's not worth getting too upset or worked up about potential conflicts of interest. I think the reality here is, a lot of times in super small, tight communities, you have people that are wearing multiple hats. And nobody's getting super rich here, right? We're we're not talking like millions and millions of dollars on the line. I mean, maybe... Maybe I'm in the wrong line of business, actually. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't speak too soon. <laughs> well, it's worked out pretty well for Krita, selling that in the Steam and Windows stores. One of the devs actually commented on an LWN article saying that they make eight times as much selling Krita in those stores than they get from donations. And the donations are about 30,000 euros per year. So we're not talking just pocket change here. I think there's a lot of opportunity in these app stores for free software to sell itself for a little bit of money because getting even $5 when you are going to get absolutely nothing is $5 earned. And they must be watching Kurita. They have to be. I'd hope so. I hope they're watching other projects to see what they're doing to stay financially stable and viable and sustainable and try to take some action when they see something successful. Uh, Like you're saying, um, the Karita story shows us that not only can you fund open source software development, but the reality of that is more Windows users are using free software to do creative work, and they're using less heavily established versions in that ecosystem, like Adobe. Um, And I don't know if the numbers are true or not, but um, I've heard very high numbers for Windows usage, particularly on Windows 10 because of that app store, like phenomenal success for the Karita project that is a a bit of a story that's not being talked about. Now, I haven't verified the numbers, so I'm not going to share them, but if they are accurate, they are way beyond anybody's wildest expectations. So there could be some real fire to that smoke. 
Yeah, and I can see LibreOffice doing equally as well because there's probably more people who need an office suite than need an art program. But it does beg the question, who would buy something that you can download for free from a different website? Does the convenience of going to the App Store really make it worth spending 15 or 25 bucks for something? I don't know about 20 bucks, but I'll tell you, there is a real convenience on the Mac side. When we loaded up a system for editing back in the day, you would just open up the Apple App Store, you would go to your purchase tab and just hit install, 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 done. And you'd walk back in an hour and you'd have the entire Apple editing suite installed. It's like a cheap, lazy, instant restore when you have to wipe a system. You could script it, you could back it all up, but if it's in the App Store, you just log into the App Store, you hit that button, once you've bought it once, you've got it forever. And if you really value an office suite, in fact, some people some people probably feel more confident when they can pay for it. If there's something I'm truly dependent on, I would rather pay for it so that way I know it's not going to go away. I suppose, and people feel more confident getting it from the App Store in their operating system rather than going to some dodgy website, even though that is, you know, the Document Foundation's website. Well, but still, it's a thing Windows users. It's something you and I kind of don't really think about as much on Linux, although you still have to be vigilant. But on Windows, there is a real rampant issue of fake software that messes your system up with ads and all kinds of crap. So it's a real problem where, at least with the Microsoft Windows Store, you know it's almost 95% guaranteed to be safe. It might be crap, but it's not going to wreck your system. Yeah, and well, it seems like a very good way to fund the project as well. If they're really going to make a ton of money from this, then great. Yeah, the elephant in the room is, of course, uh, there's nothing like this on Linux, and you don't want a project to get too hyper-distracted by where, well, I mean, I I guess I don't know how to say this because you can't blame them for focusing on Windows going forward a lot more if it's the sole source of income. It's already probably just by a huge margin. I mean, just huge margins, the larger user base. So maybe this is already an issue. But I do worry that if all of your money, if you make zero revenue from one platform and all of your money from another platform, I do worry how that sets the priorities. But maybe we're already in that world. Well, I think we definitely are in that world where most of the users of these big open source projects are on Windows, but most of the devs are on Linux, and that's why it's so great when you use them on Linux. That's true. It really is great right now. I just It feels like a very tenuous balance, and I I don't know. Maybe I'm just worried that Microsoft keeps upping their game. Uh, I, I don't know. There's probably a lot of fears at play here. But the truth of the matter is it's it's already the reality for GIMP, for Firefox, for LibreOffice, for really any major open source tool, they, VLC, like I could just go on and on. They end up with way more Windows users. And so far, us Linux users haven't been left out when that happens. But I don't know. I guess sometimes I sit on my porch looking at the cloud and think, <laughs> I don't like that very much. Well, something I don't like is how you get Google apps running on the Huawei Mate 30 Pro. I really did cringe when I read this this week. Yeah, we knew this was going to be a doozy, but this big of a whopper? Wow. So background here, of course, is that Huawei was unable to ship the Google apps and get a Play-certified device because of the current trade restrictions in place against Huawei. So they had to come up with their own solution. But we were speculating very recently that they were likely going to leave some way for consumers in the West 
to get their hands on this device and then install Google Apps. And we had a couple of theories. And here we are now, before most people can even get their hands on the device, and we have a super sketchy way to get Google Apps installed from a rando website. Yeah, there was speculation as to whether the bootloader would be unlockable, and it turns out, no, it's not. So there's no just installing a custom recovery and then flashing open G apps or something like I would do. No, you have to go to lzplay.net and then allow that website access to the Android Mobile Device Management API, which gives that website complete and utter control over your phone. This is supposed to be used by IT departments who will assign you a phone and then they have complete control over it. This is not designed to give to a random Chinese website. So this permission, this so-called device owner permission, is getting accessed through essentially an API that Huawei has created that is available on the Mate 30 Pro. It's really something. And how LZ Play even knew about it before the device was shipping is rather confusing. Because the only way you could find out currently is by reading the docs, which are in Chinese, and require that you have permission and sign an agreement with Huawei. Once you do that, you will discover that Huawei has implemented Android's MDM APIs and added two extra permissions for a device administrator that LZ Play is utilizing. One is MDM install sysapp, and the other is MDM install undetachable app. Now, this is the interesting part. With this system, an application that lives in user space can be signed as a system app and the Android OS will treat it as if it's running from the read-only system partition and give it full permissions of the device forever, indefinitely. There are ways you can remove it once you've done this, but if you do not, this LZ Play stays and remains a full device administrator indefinitely. Yeah, and how many people are going to remember or even realize that they should disable it afterwards? Because what I'm picturing here is someone has bought the phone assuming that it would have Gmail and Maps and everything on there and the Play Store... Then they get it out of the box and start using it and realize, well, hang on, there's no Google apps here. Somehow stumble across this website through a bit of Googling, allow it all these permissions, get the Google apps, and then just start using them. And then potentially whoever is running LZ Play has got access to their phone indefinitely. In the link that we have in the show notes, R speculates that perhaps Huawei is aware at some level of LZ Play just simply because they were so ahead of this secret API that nobody would really know about. Uh, but they contacted Huawei for a comment on that, and they say, no, we have, we have no affiliation. But this is interesting in the sense that this is something that never would have happened on a phone with Google Play since one of the requirements of licensing the Google Play apps is the adherence to the Android compatibility definition document, which clearly outlines that you do not do things like this. Um, and so if you want Google Play apps, you have to go through the certification and you can't do these kinds of things. And so they took the immediate opportunity to add this uh, security flag that makes this possible. I actually think it's great. I mean, not necessarily by getting from some rando website, but if I could use this myself somehow to get Google apps on a Mate 30 Pro, it would just put it on my consideration list. It goes from probably not going to spend that kind of money on a device that can't navigate me properly to if I could get that device and try it out at some point, 
I like that. I kind of I kind of think the idea of Android devices that don't ship by default with Google Play stuff but have the option to install them would be a perfect setup for me. Well, yeah, but not like this. Surely you no. want them to just have an unlockable bootloader. Well, yeah, I, for you that's the easy way and probably the right way. But nothing's easier than going to a website and pushing a button, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sometimes easy isn't best, is it? No, definitely not in this case. Not for a device that important either. But it's a very fascinating story, the way those APIs got added and then LZ Play knew about it so fast. Um, but it'd be a bad move for Huawei. Google's already shut it down. They have Play Protect. They can detect the device you're on. And uh, from what I've read it, has shut down most of the fancy play apps like the Play Store itself um, now. So even if you use that to get the Google apps on your Mate 30 Pro, Play Store won't work. Well, I've said it before, but I'm sure Huawei are regretting their decision to lock down their bootloaders. Why don't we mention an Android Zero Day right now that impacts multiple devices, including the Pixel? Yeah, this was discovered by Google's Project Zero team, and they actually did patch this vulnerability once before, but it seems to have resurfaced. I guess uh, regressions happened back in December of 2017. They found it and fixed it, but newer versions after that have been found to be vulnerable since Android 8 or later. So Pixel 2 has affected the Huawei P20, a few Yaomi devices, the Moto Z3, and the Samsung S7, S8, and S9 are also impacted by this. And it appears that it is being used in the wild. So you have Google's Project Zero team who found the vulnerability, like you mentioned, and then they coordinate with their threat analysis group, TAG, which is another division in Google that goes out and does real-world research to discover how, how this vulnerability was actually used in the real world. And uh, they came back and said that uh, they believe this zero-day was the work of an NSO group, a well-known Israeli-based company that sells exploits and surveillance tools to uh, state actors as well as others. <laughs> so they, they really do a comprehensive job now. They, they, here's all the affected devices. Here's the versions. Here's where it was introduced. And then they hand it off to another team that comes back with a full report of how it was actually used in the wild. I mean, this is next-level stuff here. It is worth saying that a spokesperson from NSO said, NSO did not sell and will never sell exploits or vulnerabilities, so they are completely denying involvement in this. Yeah. Who knows? Although I, I have a sense that Google is the kind of company that probably measures twice before they name drop somebody, but who knows? Uh, either way, we have another quote from the Android Open Source Project. A representative said, quote, The issue is rated as a high severity on Android and by itself requires the installation of a malicious application for the full potential exploitation. Any other vectors, such as web browsers, require chaining additional exploits. And also Google has notified um, device manufacturers, OEMs, and will have the patch in the October update. Yeah, so this isn't quite as serious as it could have been. Certainly not quite as serious as I thought it was when I first read about it. I was panicking, seeing, hmm, vulnerable kernels. Well, they don't get updated very often, do they, the kernels on most Android phones? Well, an up-and-coming Android manufacturer made a lot of news this week. Microsoft, they introduced new hardware for the upcoming 2020 holiday season. Two devices they, that uh, they're very proud of, one of which will be running Android. But there were some... Side comments that Satya Nadella, Microsoft's CEO, made that The Verge picked up on. Quote, what is the most important to us is the app model and experience. He goes on to say, how people are going to write apps for Duo Neo will have a lot more to do with each other than just writing a Windows app. 
or an Android app because it's going to be about the Microsoft Graph. All right, get that term in your head because Microsoft Graph is something we're going to hear a lot more about. It's like a Microsoft API and services layer that appears to be OS agnostic to a large degree. Yeah, essentially what he's admitting here is that if you can't beat them, join them. And they tried with mobile and could not beat Google and Apple, and they're not going to join up with Apple, but they're going to start supporting Android, which they kind of already have to some extent, but it feels like they're going all in now. Yeah, I thought they were done making mobile devices, but here they are. They're making an Android device, and knowing how Microsoft communicates, I'm reading between the lines here a bit, but going on some experience with this, I think they had some high-level talks with Google. And they said, look, we want to make this product. And uh, we can go the Amazon route, and we can make you know Microsoft OS that's based on Android, or we can work together. And um, Google said, well, what do you need? And they said, well, we're going to need some APIs. And Google said, let's do it. And the details are pretty thin right now. But this device running Android that they showed off at their event has the Microsoft Graph APIs built into Android. I don't want to get too off topic here, but it is a ridiculous folding phone that we're talking about. Yes, it is. You're right. Yeah, you're right. We're trying to dance around that issue, but it is one (laughs) of these folding devices. I mean, who knows, man? Maybe. Maybe they'll get there. But I think the big story here is this sort of position of, well, don't think about Windows so much. Don't even think about Azure so much. Think about all of these APIs and services together. That's a decent-ish way to think about it, I guess. Um, I don't know if I buy the the headline story, though, that Windows doesn't matter. I think Windows is still a nice wedge in their strategic portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't see them deprecating Windows anytime ever, really. Not not within the next 10 years, at least. You know what it is, is they want the apps. They want, they want all those apps that are getting developed for Android and the web. That's why they switched Edge to a Blink backend. That's why they're Working with Android, they want their devices and their services to have all of these apps, all these developers who need all these back-end services and all these nice practical workstations and stuff that they want in that action. Yeah, and ultimately, they have to think long-term. They moved far too late on mobile, and it just didn't work out for them. And so they have to think, well, what are the trends going to be over the next 10 to 20 years? And we don't want to get left behind on that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it may require that they put their pride aside and work more with Google. And you wonder if the success they're having, supposed success they're having with Edge, and the fact that Google's handled that pretty well. Like, there hasn't been a big public spat. There hasn't been any balls taken and gone home. Like, there seems to be a working relationship. Some of the changes Microsoft has introduced have even been upstreamed into the Chromium project. And so perhaps that led the way to further collaboration or at least maybe a willingness at management to proceed further. And now we're seeing this work with Android. Um, who knows? The Verge has like a lot of aspirations for where they think they are, this is going. They think this is going to be the future. We'll link to that story in the show notes, but uh, um, I'm a little more moderate on this one. I think it's Microsoft being extremely practical here. And they'll leverage Windows when it serves them to, uh, rightfully so. And um, they'll work with Google and they'll use Android when they have to as well. It's very pragmatic. And it leaves a lot of us scratching our heads because, 
I think a lot of people in our community work from a, a point of passion and scratching an itch. And uh, so it's just a different set of motivations. And they don't really care what device consumers are ultimately using as long as it's connecting somehow to Azure and making them some money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Um, but it's still like they're such a large company. There's so many people. There's so many things they're working on. Like they just recently announced that the Microsoft Game Studios will exclusively, I could be getting this wrong, I don't follow it, but I'm pretty sure they announced they're going to exclusively focus on Microsoft platforms. Well, there's no love for Linux in there. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that as a business as a whole, they're anti-Linux. It just means that one division is taking a certain competitive strategy. And so I think as Linux users, we're left observing and often finding these weird mixed messages. And it, it creates a bit of this conundrum, like, what, what's really going on here? But when you take it all in total, you can prescribe absolutely pragmatic, economic-motivated reasons for their actions. And... Uh, I can't remember the old idiom, but uh, something to the effect of usually the simplest reason uh, is the truth. I think that applies here. Yeah, Occam's razor, it's called. I knew you'd know, Joe. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a big year, and it was a big week. Um, I don't think I'll be getting a foldable Microsoft device running Windows X or Android anytime soon, though. Well, looking at the photos or mock-ups, whatever they are, of that folding phone, it looks like it's two separate screens rather than one horrible plastic screen where if you breathe on it, it breaks. So maybe it'll actually be decent. They may have the winning approach here. Uh, I think LG tried something similar, and it's more like dual monitors than it is one foldable device. So all of the strain is on the hinges instead of on the screen. And that does seem like it'd be a lot more sturdy. Um, they talk about it in their announcement about even taking some tumbles, like you can drop it a few times, whereas the, the Galaxy Fold's like, don't touch it too hard. Seriously, don't touch the screen too hard. You will break it. So it's a very different durability. Yeah, and who knows, maybe you'll be able to unlock the bootloader and install lineage on it. Whoa, could you imagine if Microsoft managed to be the Android vendor that shipped the most open Android device? No way. Not the people that invented Secure Boot. That's not going to happen, I don't think. But <laughs> No, it seems far-fetched, yeah. but you know, dare to dream is my motto. That's right. And dare to check out every episode of Linux Action News. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. There's a lot of talk these days about containers and reverse proxy and what it all is, is explained in an extras we just released. Go to extras.show. The basics of reverse proxy and some projects all explained. We'll have a link in the show notes too. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. See you later. See you later.